right, we need a little bit lighter fare, I think. So let's go to our good friend uh, Gary Chu, who's always up on movies and usually happy to share his opinions with us. Gary, are you there? Oh, yes, I am, Doug. How are you tonight? Uh, fine, thanks. Uh, you, you've seen some movie that you especially liked of late? Uh, yeah, I, this is one I saw not too long ago. It's called uh, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Buck Rogers kind of old serial film right. kind of look. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, I, and I've written a little, or written something on it, and I would like to tell your uh, listeners about it. Okay, like you do it for the people over in Tulsa on, on the web there. Yeah, no doubt about it. The surreal has become what's normal in the presidential election year of 2004. If you'll remember, just a few days ago, Batman scaled Buckingham Palace. CNN covered it live, remember? Well, now Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow are on the trail of Dr. Totenkopf, played by, yes, Lawrence Olivier in the movie Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. The great Olivier has passed on, as we know, but Kerry Conran, who conceived, wrote, and directed this whiz-bang, retro-futuristic, action-packed sci-fi saga, Olaf Fritz Lang, used actual images of Olivier, placing the screen idol in the role of Dr. Totenkopf, which loosely translated from the German means deadhead. The film is very serious, but it doesn't take itself that way. It's 1939, and several famous scientists across the world have been vanishing, so Gotham Chronicle reporter Polly Perkins, Paltrow, and ace aviator Joe Sky Captain Sullivan, Law, selflessly go on patrol around the globe to find out why. Taking them where they must go, Sky Captain pilots the same kind of craft John Wayne flew in Flying Tigers. Only, Sky's Curtis P-40 does so much more, you'll just have to see it on the screen to believe it. Giant, mechanical, monster robots, strange, metallic aircraft with flapping wings and other incredibly scary retro-tech stuff have been remotely programmed by Dr. Totenkopf to foil our noble aviator and reporter. And when all seems lost in the world of tomorrow, Angelina Jolie, in English accent already, comes to skies and Polly's aid. Jolie, in a cameo role as Captain Francesca Frankie Cook, navigates a humongous high-altitude aircraft carrier, proudly sporting a Union Jack insignia, but the garb in which she and her all-female Air Force militarize is strictly Lenny Riefenstahl, as a classical music buff, I sat waiting to hear either some Prokofiev or Stravinsky, who were composing furiously at that time, but what was on the soundtrack was a lavish, splashy Hollywood score written by Edward Schirmer, who I think has heard music composed by John Williams before, somewhere. The real deal here in this movie, however, are the special effects. I smell an Oscar, at least in this regard, for Sky Captain, Creator Conran shot all the live actor scenes in front of what the movie industry calls a blue screen. Conran put everything else in the frame digitally, after the fact, around the flesh and bone actors, including some great slices of old movies that many will recognize. We aren't in Kansas anymore, Toto, from the girl star Judy Garland is one example. Conran has also put this film in that dreary, noirish, black-white sepia washed-out color that's so in right now. Making depth short appearances are Michael Gambon as Chronicle editor Morris Paley, I'm not sure if he's connected to CBS or not, and Giovanni Ribisi as Sky's indefatigable sidekick tech guy, get this, this name, Dex Dearborn. Aha, uh -huh, now we know 
A character given the name Dearborn must have been created by a person from the state of Michigan. Yes, Carrie Conran is from, dare I say it, Flint, Michigan. Just in time to tell you about the DVD release of Fahrenheit 9-11 by Michael Moore from Flint, Michigan. That movie comes out on DVD October 5th. Oh, did I mention that The Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow is not a political film? No, no connection there to Roger and me. <laughs> None whatsoever. I, oh, so you like this film quite a bit. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, I I'm not sure if it's selling a lot of tickets, mm -hmm. but... Uh, I, I don't get the Laurence Olivier thing. Well, actually, what they... From various they, films, or... or what from, they've done is they've taken... He, it's kind of it's kind of tricky there's not the, you don't see him moving around in the movie that much mm -hmm. you actually see a shot of him when he looked like he's about actually 34 or 33 or really a young handsome yeah. man and uh they make make him he moves a little bit in the film in these shots but uh he's not really a character that moves around in the film but he is given uh a cast listing because he is actually the uh, the main uh, you know uh, genius villain of the piece. Although if I tell you much more than that, it'll give some of the ending of the movie away. Well, don't do that. So I don't want to do that to you or your listeners. Okay. Who haven't seen it at least. All right. Well, I think maybe we will go out and check this one out. Okay, it's fun. It well, really is. It's fun. It's it's good for kids too. I took my uh, twelve year old daughter to see it, and she had a ball. Well, Gary, thanks for that. We'll, uh, we'll have to talk about some other, other uh, fair that's out there of, of late, uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks. Okay. All righty. Yeah, when Gary comes back, uh, you know, we may want to see if he uh, can see the movie about Che Guevara, The Motorcycle Diaries. That, uh, that has some promise. Um, uh, Brazilian uh, director Walter Sales uh, has written about a, a trip that Guevara, long before he was the Cuban revolutionary, made with a fellow Argentinian across Latin America on a Norton motorbike. That was 1952. I, I certainly have mixed feelings about uh, Che Guevara. He is the poster boy of the Cuban revolution and all that that means. Uh, many years ago, I visited Santa Clara on the island of Cuba and saw where Guevara is buried. There's a huge monument there to where he, uh, he blew up a train at one point and, uh, I don't know, presumably disrupted the whole Cuban economy with some dynamite on train tracks. I don't know. Um, that, we'll actually have to do that because the story of Che Guevara, the real story of Che Guevara, is interesting from a lot of different angles. The, uh, the U.S. government spent a lot of money to capture and kill Che Guevara in the jungles of Bolivia. Uh, on the other side of the coin, Fidel Castro himself took great pains to get Che Guevara the heck out of Cuba, uh, partly because he was a, a rival for the affection of, uh, of the populace and, and partly because uh, he may not have been so doggone competent in running uh, a government after you've had a revolution. I know he, uh, for all of the, uh, you know, <laughs> the... Ideal, idealization, I guess, uh, of this guy. He, you know, he he ran a lot of firing squads when it came time to reorganize uh, a Cuban society. He may not have been such a nice fella, but uh, let's take a look at Che, you know, in the weeks to come, and and this this movie, which could be a very good movie. I don't know. 
All right, let's do some media stories here. CBS uh, was fined $550,000 for the uh, so-called wardrobe malfunction in last year's uh, Super Bowl. I guess this year's Super Bowl, but, uh, you know, the Super Bowl last January. Uh, Does that strike anybody as a little bit excessive? $550,000 for a breast? And, of course, in the wake of this incident, it's been used as a pretext to crack down on any station that dares let any one of the seven deadly words uh, slip out over the airwaves, Uh, which I think is interesting because if you have cable, it's not considered part of the airwaves. And if you watch the kind of uh, trash and mayhem and murder and violence and and filthy language on an episode of, like, uh, The Sopranos, that's all considered just fine, thanks. And I know there's probably a lot of you out there that like The Sopranos, but um, I don't know. I I just, I I find that stuff to be just unwatchable. It's not clever. It's not interesting. The acting isn't so hot. The plots aren't so hot. Uh, Oh, well, let me get off that soapbox. On a much happier note, uh, apparently in the, the archives of the Peabody Awards, which I guess are at the University of Georgia, uh, someone was uh, looking through these and discovered a long-lost episode of The Honeymooners. The episode was titled Love Letter. It originally aired on October 16, 1954 on The Jackie Gleason Show, and it did not exist in any other collection. Uh, this is really this is really quite, quite remarkable. Um, I, uh, unlike things like The Sopranos, I'm a huge fan of The Honeymooners, and I'm really sorry for our younger listeners if you've never really uh, seen these TV classics in, in black and white from the 1950s. Um, you know, that, that for me was like the highlight of what television could do. Low-tech stuff in black and white, didn't rely on special effects, plots were pretty simple, setups were pretty simple, and yet... Uh, the way Jackie Gleason and those and, and Art Carney and, and those people put together those episodes, it uh, it's uh, they're works of art. So uh, I've got actually, and I and yes, yes, I own the entire collection. Well, except for this episode, which uh, which has been turned over to the Jackie Gleason estate, and I think will soon uh, be available. Uh, I imagine in in stores uh, stores near you. Actually, Jackie Gleason, shortly before he died, uh, produced a number of episodes that he had obtained control of. Uh, There actually are only 39 of the original episodes from the the show that ran on the network, uh, the Dumont network, I believe, in 1954. But he did the skits on other Jackie Gleason shows after that, and I think probably before that, and he retained the rights over a lot of those. So before he died, Jackie Gleason produced what were then called the lost episodes of the honeymooners which he sold for an ungodly sum i don't know to many many millions of dollars to a public that had seen all the 39 original episodes and was hungry for more so at least there's at least one more out there that nobody's seen and uh i think it's pretty cool all right let's do another miscellaneous side of i've been sitting on since the middle of august uh, we had some fun with the economist just just their use of the language reporting on the alan keys uh-oh Obama race uh, in Illinois. Here's what they had to say about Mr. Donald Trump. In what would ordinarily be a troubling sign for a self-professed business genius, 
On October 9th, Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts, the eponymous publicly traded company of Donald Trump, announced its impending bankruptcy. Under a restructuring deal, Mr. Trump would have to give up control of not only the management of his company, but also the related use of his name. A naive reader might wonder why an investor would want to retain the Trump name. After all, this will be the second bankruptcy for Trump hotels in the past dozen years, suggesting that the failure is due to something other than mere bad luck. Yet, the irrepressible Mr. Trump and the brand of Trump seems to be headed ever upwards. Bankruptcy be damned. <laughs> the irony of the Trump Hotel's bankruptcy is hard to miss. Yet, viewed in another light, it does prove that Mr. Trump truly is in a class by himself. After all, anyone can tout the fact that they are a brilliant businessman if their businesses do brilliantly. It takes a true genius to do so, and do so convincingly, when the results say otherwise. <laughs> You know what I love about that is how he's handed his head so elegantly. And an oddball follow-up story to our discussion with uh, Gil Metavoy a few months back about the situation in Israel. We talked about uh, nuclear whistleblower Mordecai Venunu. Uh, earlier this month, it was said that uh, Mr. Venunu wants to replace his Israeli citizenship with a foreign one, perhaps Palestinian, and is considering marrying an American pen pal. Now, we talked about Venunu, a former technician at Israel's nuclear reactor, uh, serving 18 years for telling the world that Israel had nuclear weapons. Duh. Uh, anyway, for this terrible crime of letting the world know what most people in intelligence already knew, he was put in the slammer for 18 years. He's been released since. Uh, would like to leave Israel. He's basically still under house arrest in the country. He's converted to Christianity and has been staying in an Anglican church. Just an odd little story, but it did mention that Anglican Bishop Ria Abu al-Asal, which doesn't really sound like a good Anglican bishop name, but this, this is the Middle East, um, was asked by Venunu and a friend, Kathy, his friend, Kathy St. Ange of Wisconsin, for the blessing of the bishop. Uh... Venuno has met St. Ange via email, and she visited him twice for periods of several days, and as far as marriage goes, he says, I'm considering it. Well, if we can, rec we can recommend one thing to Mordecai Venuno is that you don't get married after meeting someone for, quote, several days, unquote. You know, I know a guy that did that. It didn't pan out. We never got around to our Osama account. It has now been... 1,115 days since Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda terrorist organization attacked the United States on September 11th. In the meantime, we've invaded an entirely unrelated different country, put its dictator in jail, and opened up the country for religious bedlam where organizations like Al-Qaeda can thrive. And in a not unrelated story... We see oil prices now charging toward $50 a barrel, an all-time high. Yet you'll notice in this election season, we're not seeing gas prices go anywhere. We're not seeing any impact of this on American gas prices that might in the least way cause people to be dissatisfied with the current administration, which I think, I just suspect somewhere has something to do with the fact 
that the executive branch is headed by two Texas oil men. What do you think? Oh, I, I know that Halliburton and, and Dick Cheney, that technically he's from Wyoming and that it's, you know, it's not really an energy company, et cetera, et cetera, but come on. You know, you know when, it, when someone pointed out to Cheney after he said that, you know what, Mr. Bush, I've take, Governor Bush, I've taken a look at all the candidates for vice president, and you know what, I'm the best possible choice. He'd been living in Texas for like 15 straight years. Someone pointed out to him that it is specifically prohibited in the United States Constitution for the president and vice president to come from the same state. So he hot-footed back to Wyoming and got re-registered to vote back in the state he once represented in the U.S. Congress and thus again becoming a, quote, Wyoming citizen, unquote. All right, we've got time for a few more miscellaneous items that have been on hold. Dateline, Belgrade, Serbia, Montenegro. Serbian education minister Liljanja Kolic has ordered schools to stop teaching children the theory of evolution for this year and to resume it, teaching it in the future only if it shares equal billing with creationism. This came on the Reuters news service on September 7th. A few days later, red-faced officials in Serbia and Montenegro reversed this policy and stated that they would continue to teach Darwinism. But, uh, but it was a squeaker. Uh, it was a squeaker. Apparently, uh, uh, people, uh, Colic told people when she made this decision that Darwinism is a theory as dogmatic as the one which says God created the first man. Well, I, I, I don't think so. Of course, what, you know, what gets people about this story is that it actually got to the point of, of banning it, banning the teaching of evolution in the future. But right here in the good old U.S. of A., the state of Kansas scrubbed all mention of evolution and the Big Bang Theory from its curriculum in 1999. It just didn't ban their teaching. It was, of course, the straight-laced citizens of Kansas who in the last century, or in the 19th century, were the, uh, was the hotbed of the temperance movement which brought the United States prohibition of alcoholic beverages in uh, the early 20th century and all the disaster that resulted from that. I, I, wish, they would, I wish they would learn in Kansas. And uh, speaking of political lunacy, item here from the B, uh, still held over from August, Sacramento Mayor Heather Fargo's plan to hold a team-building retreat with her city council colleagues to analyze their, quote, behavioral work styles, unquote, fell flat with some members at the council meeting. Councilwoman Sandy Sheedy said the retreat's agenda was filled with the psychological babble, and she objected to hiring a facilitator to work with the group, calling it hand-holding. The retreat agenda proposed discussion on explorations of council members and the mayor and ways to help council operations run more smoothly. Fargo had said she included some council members' suggestions, including Lauren Hammond's topic of council protocol. According to the Bee, when the discussion grew a bit heated, Fargo would interrupt other council members to defend her proposal. She explained the city attorney's office told her she was required to post an agenda for the retreat, which is open for the public. This discussion is pointing out why we need a retreat, Fargo finally said. All right, and our final item. For the first time in 355 years, Great Britain has an official court jester. 
The lucky clown is Nigel Rodder, who goes by the professional name of Kester the Jester. He succeeds Muckle John, who lost his job when King Charles I was beheaded in 1649. Yes, for the first time since Oliver Cromwell declared Britain a republic, they've got an official court jester. His position was created by the English Heritage, an organization that cares for various historic sites. He won't perform, he, although he won't perform at the royal court, he'll ply his trade before the public at designated landmarks. I'm just wondering if we might be able to get him involved in one of those Sacramento City Council retreats. That's it for today's show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced, as it always is, by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next Thursday. And uh, stay tuned for the debate, which we'll be following on television stations near you. That's, of course, if you're not listening to Todd, which you should also do. 